Dorothea Puente looked like a sweet grandma. A seemingly gentle and kind elderly lady, Dorothea ran a boarding house throughout the 1980s in Sacramento, California, welcoming in the elderly and disabled and providing a safe haven. Generous and caring, right? Well, no, not really, because appearances can be deceiving and not everything is always as it seems. Dorothea Puente was not the sweet old lady she worked so hard to appear to be, and between 1982 and 1988, the elderly and disabled people living in Dorothea's boarding house started to go missing. These disappearances would go unnoticed for years. This was until police searching for a missing tenant found a patch of disturbed dirt near the boarding house and uncovered the first of several bodies. This is the case of Dorothea Puente, the death house landlady. Well hello my fellow weirdos, I'm Dom and welcome to episode 6 of Horror House. Thank you everyone for the love that you've shown for episode 5. I got some really good reviews, some really good comments, a lot of love, so thank you. I'm really glad that people seem to have enjoyed that little maritime mystery. Today we are back onto our true crime stuff and Dorothea Puente is the star of the show. So, settle in, make a brew, and let's get to talking about the death house landlady. Dorothea Puente was born on the 9th of January 1929 and was the sixth of seven children, born to Jesse James Gray and uh, Trudy Gray. In what is a recurring theme among serial killers and among true crime cases, Dorothea had, I think it's fair to say, a not ideal upbringing, deprived of material comforts and nurture in equal measure. Her father died of tuberculosis when she was eight, and her mother, an alcoholic who went back and forth between abusing or deserting her children, lost custody of them in 1938. She would also go on to lose her life in a motorcycle accident that same year, leaving Dorothea an orphan before the age of 10. Orphans, Puente and her siblings splintered off in different directions, bouncing back and forth between foster homes and the homes of relatives. Uh, Dorothea drifted off on her own when she was around 16, moving to Olympia, Washington and working as a prostitute. This is where she caught the eye of Fred McFall, a 22-year-old soldier who had returned to the States following WW2. They married in 1945 and moved to Nevada to start a family. However, domestic bliss and maternal instinct failed to take root in Dorothea, and while she gave birth to a daughter in 1946 and another a year later, One was put up for adoption and the other was placed into the care of relatives. McFall called it quits and split from his young wife in 1948. 
and Dorothea moved to San Bernardino in California and picked up her first conviction after she attempted to float a check under a false name. Oh, the sign of things to come. For this, she served four months in prison and was supposed to stick around and serve her probation. But the sly devil said, I'm a head out, skipped town and flouted the terms of her probation because of course she did. It is Dorothea Puente after all. After skipping town, Dorothea went to San Francisco. Here, she married her second husband, Axel Bren Johansson, in 1952. Far from the perfect marriage, frequent fights regarding Puente's drinking and gambling and other men marred the marriage. Court Files states that Johansson actually committed his wife to a psychiatric ward in 1961 and doctors placed her on antipsychotics. The hospitalization occurred a year after Puente was busted in a raid on a house of ill repute that had fronted as a bookkeeping service, according to court reports. An undercover cop posing as a trucker arrested her after <laughs> after she offered to give him a blowjob, which led to her serving 90 days in a county jail. Wow. <laughs> Despite this, their marriage lasted until 1966. Hard living had taken away much of Dorothea's youthful beauty by the time she reeled in her third husband in 1968. At 39, she was 16 years older than Robert Puente. Their marriage would last 16 months, with Dorothea citing domestic abuse as the cause of the separation. Social workers in the 70s looked upon Dorothea with admiration. They praised her willingness to take in so-called shadow people, people that were considered tough cases such as drug addicts, recovering alcoholics, the mentally ill, and the elderly. The pillar of society, Dorothea Puente. Behind the scenes, it was very different, however, and this is because while the business provided her with a steady revenue, it was apparently inadequate because her upstanding reputation was a perfect cover for her not-so-upstanding habit of forging the signatures of her tenants on their benefit checks before signing them over to herself. Oh, you sly, sly devil, Dorothea. Arrested for the scam in 1978, she was slapped with five years federal probation, the terms of which prohibited her from running a boarding house. Over the next few years, Dorothea adapted and worked as an in-home caregiver, putting on the front of a gentle older lady with her modest dress and oversized glasses while inflating her age by 10 to 15 years. And why did she do this? To disarm her clients so she could go about exploiting them under the guise of ministering to them. Dorothea drugged three women with tranquilizers in order to take checks, money and valuables from their homes in the early 80s, court records show. Oh, and there's more. Around the same time, she slipped a heavy sedative into the drink of a 74-year-old man she met at a club. When they returned to his apartment, he watched in a stupor, likely not knowing where he was or what his own name is, 
while Dorothea helped herself to his checks and cash. Oh, also, before leaving, she even slipped a diamond ring off his pinky finger. I, just, I can't. I shouldn't laugh, but I just, I can't with this woman, man. I can't. We haven't even got to the meat of the case yet, and I, I just can't. I just can't. The string of thefts and druggings led to her arrest in 1982, and a superior court judge slapped her with a five-year sentence at the California Institution for Women. Released after three years due to good behaviour, she returned to Sacramento and had her federal probation extended to 1990, you know, because of that little snafu with stealing cash, valuables, and tranquilizing people. While in prison, she began corresponding with Everson Gilmouth, a 77-year-old retiree from Oregon. A pen pal friendship developed, and when Puente was released in 1985, after serving three of her five-year sentence... He met her outside the prison, driving a red 1980 Ford pickup. Their relationship developed quickly, and the couple were very soon making wedding plans. I would, I would, I, I would have, I would have got out quickly, Everson. I wouldn't be hanging around. Oh dear. <laughs> a state psychologist who evaluated Puente before her release from prison in 1985 diagnosed her as a schizophrenic. He wrote that this woman is a disturbed woman who does not appear to have remorse or regret for what she has done. She is to be considered dangerous and her living environment and or employment should be closely monitored. So, naturally, the following year, without a license and showing a massive middle finger to her probation, she opened another boarding house with space for as many as eight tenants. Dorothea, the pillar of society. In this new house, Dorothea got up to her old tricks. Puente took in more shadow people, people who were practically homeless and lacked close friends or family. So when they started to go missing, nobody noticed. Federal probation officers even visited her numerous times without suspecting she ran a business duped by her kind facade and clean home as much as her lies that those staying at the house were merely friends and guests. In April 1982, 61-year-old Ruth Monroe moved into Dorothea's boarding house. Soon after, and it was purely just a coincidence and nothing else, Monroe died of an overdose of codeine and acetaminophen. When police arrived, Puente told them that Monroe had been depressed due to her husband's terminal illness. Completely satisfied, the police went on their merry way. In December 1985, Puente hired a handyman named Ismael Flores to install some wood panelling in her home. After Flores finished the work, Puente had just one more request to build a six-foot-long box to transport books and a few other items that the pair would take to a storage facility. However, en route, Puente abruptly asked Flores to pull over near a riverbank and just push the box into the water. On New Year's Day, a fisherman spotted the box, saw it looked suspiciously like a coffin, 
and informed police. Now, would you be shocked to learn that inside the box was the rotting corpse of Everson Gilmouth? No, I'm gonna say you. I'm gonna say you're probably not. Dorothea continued to collect Everson Gilmouth's pension and even wrote letters to his family explaining that the reason that he had not contacted them was because he was ill. And it wouldn't be for another three years that coroners were able to identify the body as one of the tenants in Dorothea's house. In August of 1988, Alvaro Montoya went missing. A gentle giant, Montoya suffered from untreated psychosis, a condition that forced him to the streets and homeless shelters. Due to the sterling reputation that Puente held among social workers, Puente welcomed him into her home. Given Montoya's history as a transient, normally his disappearance would go entirely unnoticed. However, someone had their eye on Montoya. An outreach counsellor with Volunteers of America, Judy Moyes, had visited the house before placing him into the care of Dorothea. In October, after discovering that he no longer lived at the house, Moyes began to hound Puente regarding his departure. Unconvinced by Puente's evasive answers, first that he had moved to Mexico, then returned and moved to Utah, her suspicion was spiked and she filed a missing persons report with police. An officer dispatched to the house interviewed Puente and one of her tenants, John Sharp. In her presence, he corroborated Puente's story. However, when the officer went to leave, Sharp managed to slip him a handwritten note that read, she's making me lie for her. On the 11th of November, the police returned to the house, the three officers being lead detective John Cab... Cabrera, a fellow homicide detective and a federal probation agent. The officers wanted to question Puente about Montoya. She stuck to her story that he left for Utah after a trip to Mexico and agreed to let the three search the house. Pretty brazen. Pretty brazen there by Dorothea. When they didn't find anything, they asked if they could dig her yard. She consented again and even lent a shovel to one of the ban, as they only bought two. The actual goddamn audacity of this woman, man. As it happened, her shovel was used to dig the hole that yielded a human leg bone, a decomposed foot inside a dark dress shoe, and what looked like pieces of tattered fabric that in fact were rotting flesh. The discovery prompted Cabrera to summon Puente to the backyard. She gasped at the sight of the remains, absolutely bamboozled, saying, I don't know what to tell you. Cabrera took in Puente for questioning and grilled her for two hours. Unwavering in her account of Montoya's departure, her voice stayed calm as the detective pressed her, saying, Sir, I have not killed anybody. She explained that she had buried some excess trash in the backyard holes that a tenant had mentioned and covered some of them with concrete to stunt the growth of weeds. Later on, Cabrera stated that I started working her 
but all along she was working me. She was tough. She never blinked. She never broke a sweat. After the interview, she was allowed back home with a patrolman stood outside throughout the night. Police and forensic experts rocked up at Puente's property the next morning. As she watched from her porch and before Cabrera put spade to soil, she requested a moment of his time. Speaking softly, she asked, am I under arrest? When the detective said no, she explained that the police presence and growing mob of people was making her uncomfortable. Oh, bless her little heart. Kind, gentle Dorothea didn't like the fact that a body was found in her yard, so now they must dig it up and there's people watching. To soothe her anxiety, she wanted to walk to a nearby hotel with one of her boarders to have coffee with her nephew. Cabrera's superiors approved her request, deciding that they held insufficient evidence to detain her. He escorted escorted her out of the property's iron front gate and walked about halfway to the Clarion Hotel with Puente and John McCauley. Once free of the mass of people, Cabrera stopped and watched the pair enter the hotel, then returned to the house, grabbed a shovel and started to dig. 21 minutes later, sufficient evidence was exhumed, which was the remains of a second body buried about a foot deep. Officers made a mad dash to the hotel to arrest Puente, but by then she had already bolted. Puente and Macaulay had hitched a cab from the hotel to a West Sacramento bar. In order to calm her poor wrecked nerves, she treated herself to an orange juice and vodka while Macaulay had a beer. The two then separated, with him returning downtown. However, Puente went to Stockton via another cab, then hopped on a bus to Los Angeles. She sequestered herself in the Royal Viking Motel for three days, barely leaving her room. Back in Sacramento, the police dug up five more bodies, including Bert Montoya's. Several were wrapped in linens that matched linens found in the Puente home. Her escape brought coast-to-coast ridicule of police chief John Kearns and his department, while authorities chased dead-end leads from Las Vegas to Mexico. In LA, cabin fever was settling in for our favourite landlady, and on her fourth day on the lamb, she dropped by a dive bar near the motel. Introducing herself as Donna Johnson to a retired carpenter named Child Wilgess, the two talked through the afternoon, with Childs being both attracted to and wary of the well-dressed stranger. Dorothea did come on pretty goddamn strong with questions about his social security benefits. I know, I know, so unlike... Dorothea to ask about social security benefits and also the pretty abrupt suggestion that they live together. Damn girl, pump the brakes a little bit. They made a date to go shopping the next day. However, Charles returned to his apartment with the gut feeling that he had seen her face before. He pieced the puzzle together a few hours after they parted and later that night, the police converged on room 31 of the Royal Viking. 
The Sacramento police escorted her back to the city on a plane chartered by a news crew. During a brief in-flight interview with reporter Mike Boyd, she said, I have not killed anyone. The checks I cashed, yes. In a cryptic aside, she also added, I used to be a very good person at one time. Dorothea Puente was charged with nine murders. This total included Everson Gilmouth, the man who she met upon her release from prison in 1985, whose body would be found in a box next to the Sacramento River, Ruth Monroe, her former business partner, and seven other boarders from her boarding house. Among these was Montoya, whom police speculated was used by Puente to carry wrapped up bodies from the house, and when he learned the truth, he paid with his life. The case rested on circumstantial evidence. Forestic testing had failed to determine a definitive cause of death in any of the victims. The seven tenants who had lived at 1426 F Street died with a variety of drugs in their bodies, anti-convulsants, antidepressants, antipsychotics, painkillers and tranquilizers. The lone drug present in all of them was Dalmain, a sedative for which Puente had obtained more than three dozen prescriptions of 30 pills each between October 1985 and November 1988, according to court reports. The blend of narcotics found in the victims could potentially have proven lethal or at least weakened them to the point that Puente could smother them with a pillow or a blanket. However, the passage of time that had passed since the victims died had reduced the toxology results to educated guesswork. Nor could anyone rule out that the four women and three men had taken drugs on their own, considering their assorted substance addictions, physical maladies and mental illnesses. Former psychiatrist William Vickery, who was assigned to evaluate Puente as her case proceeded to trial, diagnosed her as suffering from antisocial personality disorder, a condition marked by deceit and manipulation of others without remorse. He also speculated that running a boarding house began as a humane endeavour, rooted in her desire to undo painful childhood memories. On the other hand, however, Vickery stated that when these people, as, pe- as could be expected, would act up, at that point she snapped and decided to kill them. The Puente trial dragged on for five months, with more than 150 witnesses, thousands of pieces of evidence, and a firestorm of media scrutiny. Puente played stoic in court, her face as frozen as her mugshot. Honey Hewlett, one of the 12 jurors seated for the trial, states that she sat there so totally motionless and emotionless. Jury deliberations started in July 1993 and not long after came to a screeching halt. Eleven jurors were convinced of Puente's guilt in killing the seven boarders found in her yard. However, one juror disagreed. Tempers spiked as the impasse stretched to his third week. For Hewlett, who now lives in Oregon, and others, there was one factor that undercut Puente's claims of innocence. Hewlett states, I just don't believe that strongly in coincidence. 
how many other boarding houses have one person die? She had seven. That's just too much coincidence. Finally, on the 24th day of deliberations, the holdout juror voted guilty on two counts of first-degree murder and one second-degree count of murder. He neither explained his motive for capitulating nor discussed why he agreed to convict her of only three killings. After the final verdict was read, it was at this point that Puente's composure faltered. In his various sessions with Dorothea, Vickery had avoided directly asking her if she had killed anyone, knowing she would completely withdraw if he did. Her eyes would fill with tears, but she would never admit it, he says. It was too humiliating, too shameful for her to admit responsibility for these crimes, and it was so counter to her strenuous effort all her life to be somebody who was respected, somebody important. Dorothea Puente ultimately would receive a sentence of life without the possibility of parole. She died in prison of natural causes on the 27th of March 2011 at age 82. For the rest of her life behind bars, Puente insisted that she was innocent and that she had been taking good care of the people under her charge. The only time the boarders were in good health was when they stayed at my home, Puente insisted from prison. I made them change their clothes every day, take a bath every day, eat three meals a day. When they came to me, they were so sick, they weren't expected to live. And that's a wrap on episode six, Dorothea Puente. The landlady we would all just love to have. What a woman. What a woman. I really hope you enjoyed listening to this episode and my sassy, sarcastic remarks didn't get too, too much. It felt good to be back researching a true crime case after some time away from true crime. Not saying that I didn't enjoy reading up on urban legends or the Flannanal mystery because I had a blast doing those. But I think we all love a morbid true crime case. Next week, I'll be talking about Jerome Brudos, the shoe fetish slayer. So be sure to tune in for that one. In the meantime, follow the podcast on Instagram at HHTrueCrimeInTheMacabre, on Facebook at HorrorHousePod, and on Twitter at HHTrueCrimePod. Also, be, che- be sure to check out the shiny brand new website too, www.hrhousepod.com horrorhousetruecrime.com which I'll link in the show notes. There's a contact form on the website so feel free to get in touch with any episode suggestions. You'll also find links to social media pages, episodes and links to Horror House on Spotify, Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts. You can also rate and review the podcast on the website too which would help the podcast out massively and lets me know how I'm doing as a host. Rate and review on Apple Podcasts or horrorhousetruecrime.com. And on that note, all that's left to say is, until next time, stay spooky. Spooky.